0: I'm Eden
1: and I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Roadside Horror Show.
0: Show. This week we are in Kentucky.
1: Bluegrass State yet again.
0: Yep. and uh, we had a lot of fun here with our last episode so hopefully this episode will be just as good.
1: I think it will be. I'm always hopeful.
0: I have an interesting and kind of timely in points story so.
1: Oh timely. I like timely topical things. I have an equally Old-timey story, actually. Oh, nice. Maybe not the most timely thing, but it's pretty good. Um, I did also find some weird laws in Kentucky, and I'm pretty excited because I think I may have figured out the ice cream in the back pocket thing.
0: Oh, really? Now Mm -hmm. I'm really curious. Okay.
1: You're going to have to wait until I go through my other weird laws first. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, in Kentucky, it is against the law to handle or display any type of reptile during a religious ceremony. So, if you violate the law, you're subject to a 50 a fifty or a one hundred dollar fine, which means no serpent handling, or lizard handling, or turtle handling, or crocodile handling in church.
0: Which is super common in like the revival yep. stuff. So,
1: totally why they have this law.
0: People get bitten all the time, guys. I know they think they won't cause Jesus, but they do.
1: I did come across a pretty insane uh, true crime story. Uh, there just wasn't quite enough information. But it did involve a uh, Kentucky snake charmer, snake handler. Oh, cool. Um, so maybe I'll save that for a refuel and we touch on the stories where we didn't quite have enough info for. Yeah, that'd be cool. I thought this was hilarious. All Kentucky residents are required by law to shower at least once a year. Well, that's good. Cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> once a year should do it. It's fine. Perfect. I'm more of a
1: three times a year kind of guy myself. Ooh, you fancy. I know. There's an old law on the books in Kentucky that says, regardless of how much you drink, you're considered sober if you can, quote, hold your ground. All right. That means if you fall down and can't get back up again, you're drunk legally. I'm sure that's changed now that there are, you know, drunk driving laws and things like blood alcohol level. But I just thought that was hilarious. That That is. As long as you don't fall on your ass, (laughs) you're not drunk. (laughs) And now the exciting part. Ice cream cones in your back pocket. Yes. So we talked about how this weird law keeps popping up in states all across the South for yeah. some reason. Well
0: From I, Virginia on down. Yeah, from Virginia so on like down. Pretty much right past the Mason Dixon.
1: Yep. Yep. Now, as I was like, God, why does Kentucky have this law too? I actually came across this website and it was a legal website that said the reason for this law is because in Kentucky they have so many horses and horse theft horse thievery, I guess. Horse thievery, horse theft. Um, Was a really big impact economically for folks because, you know, you raise horses for a living. Yeah. So apparently back in the day, thieves used to steal horses by sticking ice cream cones in their back pocket and enticing the horse to follow them. Because if the horse follows them, then it's technically not horse theft.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So they would put like an empty ice cream cone in their back pocket. Which makes sense because we never, the laws never really said anything about ice cream being in the ice cream cone. Just, just no ice, ice cream, cream cone. Yeah. And then the horse would basically follow you trying to eat this ice cream cone. Oh and my it's, God. Isn't that crazy? Because all the states, it's like Virginia. We're like also horse country. Yeah. And it's like all the horse country states. And I'm like, it makes sense.
0: That's nuts. Okay. <laughs> wow. We finally know the answer.
1: I figured you'd enjoy that. Plus, I mean, horses.
0: I mean, it's been the greatest mystery of this whole podcast. Yes. So. <laughs>
1: all about solving mysteries yes here on roadside horror show so those are my weird laws i think i think they're pretty good thank you kentucky for finally explaining ice cream cones in the back
0: pocket absolutely thank you very much
1: (laughs) so i can jump into my story if you'd like i would love that all right so today we're headed to louisville kentucky the largest city in the state and the 29th most populous city in the united states named after king louis the 16th of france Louisville was founded in 1778, making it one of the oldest cities west of the Appalachian Mountains. All right. Uh, The city sits on the Ohio River along Kentucky's northern border with Indiana and is close to this natural place on the river called the Falls of Ohio. Uh, It's basically a series of rapids on the Ohio River that makes it particularly precarious to navigate. And in fact, it kind of acts like a navigational barrier between the Ohio River all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So you have to go around these falls. And that's kind of why Louisville grew up. It grew up as like a portage site. So basically you, cool. you get to Louisville, unload your cargo, carry it around the falls of the Ohio, and then load it back on the ships for the remainder of the journey. By the early 19th century, they had built canals and some railroads that basically fortified Louisville as this shipping hub for the Midwest and the South. So kind of cool.
0: That is pretty cool.
1: Louisville remains. An important logistical transportation city today, um, as well as being a significant manufacturing center. Companies such as Ford and GE have really large plants in Louisville, yeah. and it's the center of the bourbon whiskey industry, like we talked about on last episode. Uh, the Kentucky horse industry also plays a large part in the city's economy. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, right. I think most people know Louisville as the host city for the Kentucky Derby every year at Churchill Downs. Uh, I found out actually two weeks before the Derby, the city like has this huge party, and they call it the Kentucky oh, really? Derby Festival. Yeah, huh. I didn't know that. And it starts off with this uh, fireworks display, which is apparently the largest annual fireworks display in North America, called Thunder Over Louisville. Oh, okay. I'm like, that sounds awesome. And then over the next two weeks before the Derby, they have tons of events. Um, I think last year when they had it, uh, they had nearly 70 different events. Everything from a Pegasus parade, uh, the great steamboat race on the Ohio, a great balloon race, lots of marathons and 5Ks, and, of course, musical performances. Aside from the Kentucky Derby, Louisville is also known as the home of legendary boxer Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. Kentucky Fried Chicken, which is now just KFC. Yeah. And, of course, the Louisville Slugger baseball bats, bringing you home protection for years.
0: And also, you know, good to smash out headlights with, according to um, what's her name, Carrie Underwood. (laughs) Thank you. It's like cannot think of her name. Okay, this joke is going nowhere. Help, Nicole. I've
1: heard that song so many times at karaoke that it's like burned into my brain. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Louisville Sluggers, they actually have a cool museum that you can visit, which features the world's largest baseball bat, and it's like just leaned right outside the entrance. It's 120 feet tall. Oh wow! Yeah, and it has the Louisville Slugger branding on it and stuff. It's pretty cool. Uh, But for our tale today, we are traveling back to the Louisville of yesteryear, to 1934. Uh, When the country was still in the grips of the Great Depression, uh, the first of FDR's New Deal programs were finally starting to pick up around America, but that still left many citizens facing high unemployment, food shortages, and life savings that were evaporated overnight due to the collapsing banks and financial system. Mm -hmm. Faced with poverty, some folks turned to crime to get by pretty normal
0: you know sounds about right
1: yep yep uh when i think about criminals in the 1930s like depression era criminals i immediately go to like al capone john dillinger yeah like those organized gangsters and like bank robbers right but apparently the 1930s also saw this rise in a new type of get rich quick american criminal enterprise kidnapping and ransoming the rich and famous oh wow so When I think about famous American kidnappings, I think of Charles Lindbergh's baby, right? Of course. It was this huge incident where, unfortunately, his son was found dead in 1932, and it spawned these very aggressive anti-kidnapping laws. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that empowered the FBI to become more of a federal police force versus just investigating for tax evasion and tax fraud. Yeah. So, while... That happened on the East Coast in New Jersey. Did you know that a kidnapping of a wealthy Louisville resident was dubbed, quote, Louisville's crime of the century?
0: No, I did not.
1: It was. And that's my tale for today. It's the uh, story of the kidnapping of Alice Speed Stoll.
0: What that name think? sounds a little familiar, though.
1: I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, so Alice was from one of Louisville's oldest and most powerful families, the Speeds. Um, She was a socialite, a debutante. Uh, Her grandfather, James Breckenridge Speed, was an entrepreneur who served as the president for the Louisville Railway Company, the Louisville Cement Company, and he was also the president of the Ohio Valley Telephone Company. So he owned a
0: whole hell of a lot of shit.
1: Basically. You name it, the speeds had something to do with it. Uh, one of her uncles was actually Abraham Lincoln's attorney general. Wow. So a lot of other family members have served in government for, in some capacity, but those are the two probably most prominent Speed family members. Now, with all this wealth in Louisville, the family did and still does contribute to a lot of philanthropic causes. And some of Louisville's finest Institutes like the JB Speed School of Engineering at the University of Louisville and the Speed Art Museum are from this family's charitable donations. Okay. So they had lots of money. Now when Alice was in her twenties, she met and married Barry V. Stoll. Barry worked as an executive for his family's company, which was Stoll Oil. Stoll Oil ran a bunch of oil refineries and a chain of gas stations all throughout Kentucky and Tennessee. Now during nineteen thirty-four, The couple lived in a smart two-story brick house in an upscale Louisville neighborhood. During the fall of 1934, the neighborhood was experiencing repeated problems with its phone lines. So the appearance of a phone company repairman at the Stoll's doorstep one afternoon in October of 1934 wasn't anything out of the ordinary. The housekeeper answered the door and met the man. Now, Alice had been sick all day in bed with a fever, so she kind of was just like, housekeeper, just whatever. No appointments, no callers. Yeah. Well, the repairman said that he was here to check the phone lines because they were doing work up the road, and he wanted to make sure that everything at the house is okay. And he inquired if Mr. Stoll was home. Uh, The housekeeper said no, he wasn't home, and she let the repairman into the house. After the repairman checked a few lines in the hallway and in the kitchen, he snuck up behind the housekeeper and pulled a forty-five caliber handgun. Oh, great. He demanded that she find the lady of the house and take him to her. The housekeeper led the fake repairman upstairs to Alice's bedroom. When he got upstairs, he knocked on the door and told Alice that he was just here to check the phone lines in her room. Then he pushed the housekeeper through the door and told Alice, just kidding, I'm here to kidnap you.
0: <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding.
1: Uh, he directs the and house. And she laughed and, and laughed. she laughed. Oh, you old scamp. Did my husband put you up to this? <laughs> no. Uh So you have poor Alice in bed with a fever. It's just like, what is happening? Probably terrified because there's a strange man waving a gun at her and her housekeeper. Uh, He tells the housekeeper to tie Alice up and he gives her some wire, like phone wire to tie her up. As the housekeeper's tying her hands up, Alice tries to talk to the man like any reasonable person would do. Telling him stuff like, hey, you don't need to kidnap me. If you're really that desperate for money, I can write you a check here and now, and you can cash it, and I won't put a stop payment on it, and you can, we can just, you know, end this now. Smart. Yep. Very, very smart. Uh, But this just agitates the man, and he says, you know what? The housekeeper isn't tying your hands tight enough. You need to shut up and be quiet and let me do what I need to do. So he pushes the housekeeper out of the way, puts his gun on the bed, and starts to retie Alice's hands. Alice is a pretty smart person, as we already know. She tried to negotiate, yeah. right? Well, she takes advantage of his distraction to pull away and grab for the gun he left on the bed. Good job. Mm hmm. Unfortunately, the man had a 16 inch piece of lead pipe in his back pocket that Alice didn't see. He grabbed it and then struck her in the head, stunning her and spraying blood all over oh, the bed sheets. Yeah, he basically like cracked her across the head and like gave her a pretty nasty head wound. Yeah. He told her to cooperate, or he'd wait until her husband got home and then kill him before kidnapping Alice anyway. Damn. Concussed, feverish, and now bleeding from the head, Alice agrees and allows the man to tie her up. After securing Alice, the man gags and binds the housekeeper with some additional wire. Then he tosses an envelope onto Alice's bed and tells the housekeeper to make sure that Barry Stoll gets it when he gets home. He marches Alice downstairs at gunpoint, tells her to put on a coat, and then orders her out the front door to the back seat of a waiting automobile. He orders her to lay down across the back seat and be quiet or else. He then covers her with newspapers and a blanket before climbing into the front seat and driving off. A few short hours later, Barry Stoll arrives home to find his housekeeper tied up, his wife gone, and a ransom note. Damn. Now, the ransom note was typed out, and it said to the members of the Stoll family, Do not call the police, but read this letter, or you will never see Stoll again, alive or dead. And then that was on the outside of the envelope. Okay. So on the inside is this two-page letter.
0: And it said, just kidding.
1: J- yeah. JK! <laughs> Fool you! So the two-page letter was addressed to Barry. Uh, the kidnapper again had typed this out. And he wanted $50,000 for Alice's safe return. Um, interestingly enough, this part of the letter was actually edited in hand by by the kidnapper. He took a pencil and scratched out the original amount, which is $30,000. <laughs> And then wrote $50,000 for Mrs. Stoll uh, right above it.
0: Interesting. All right.
1: Yeah. Super weird. And it's now like, oh.
0: No, no. I think I'm low balling. Let's go No, she's She's
1: too feisty. I'm going to, you know, yes.
0: I, should, I deserve more money for my pain. This woman talks back. If I'm going <laughs> to have to keep her kidnapped for a while, I need more than 30000
1: So it has this request at, in, in the instructions for the ransom as well. So it's not just, I want this money or else you'll hear from me. It's like, I want this money. I want you to take it and leave it for a man named Mr. Thomas Robinson Sr. who lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And it said, once you do that, the kidnapper would contact you with further instructions on where to find Alice after the ransom is paid. Seems pretty straightforward. Barry totally disregards the instructions like a normal human and contacts the authorities. Given the high profile of both Alice's family and Barry's family, uh, the FBI was immediately engaged. The next day, an FBI team from Cincinnati arrived at the Stole home and they began their investigation. Uh, Luckily, there was a ton of physical evidence. So there's the blood, there's the wires, there's the ransom note, and there's also fingerprints they were able to find where the guy came in and like touched the phone lines while he was pretending to be a repairman. Nice. So they start to interview Alice's associates and family and they discover that her father in law, Cece Stole, was familiar with the man that was mentioned in the ransom note, that Thomas oh, Robinson Sr. Yeah, he knew him. He had actually hired that man's son for a couple jobs a few years prior. And the son, Thomas Robinson Jr., if that's not confusing enough, yeah, <laughs> uh, had recently actually contacted Stoll looking for more work.
0: That's probably how they knew that this family had money and knew. Mm-hmm, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. Okay. So Stoll Sr. happened to have the job inquiry letter in the application, and the FBI, FBI took it and analyzed the handwriting against the adjustment in the ransom note, mm-hmm. um, and the samples were a match. Wow, okay. And then they started looking further into the younger Robinson and found criminal records for him in Nashville. These criminal records contained fingerprints that matched the ones found at the scene of Alice's kidnapping. So they had their guy. Yeah. Now, the FBI is like, you know what? We got to stop him. We got to save Alice. We're going to declare him public enemy number one and get his picture out there and see what we can do but my question when i came across this was okay so it's some guy who worked for the family but just who the hell was thomas robinson Jr.? yeah well it turns out he was a 27 year old former law student from nashville he had been a really promising student at vanderbilt uh, a couple years prior when he suddenly knocked up the girl he was seeing uh this girl named sue ann tubbs Now, he was kind of forced into a wedding, and they had a shotgun marriage in 1927. However, shortly after the baby was born, and Robinson noticed that this kid looks nothing like him, he found out that the entire time he was seeing Sue Ann, she was cheating on him with several different men. So he immediately sued for divorce, claiming that this kid probably isn't even his, given just the sheer quantity of guys who said that that they had slept with his wife. Yeah. Well, he gets his divorce, but I guess the whole process was really trying for Robinson because he ends up having a breakdown. Okay. And he's sent to, th- to a Nashville mental institution for 30 days to be monitored and to quote unquote recover. His dad is pretty uh, well known in the Nashville community. So he uses whatever leverage he has to get his son out of the institute and basically in his not custodial ship, but basically like he vouchers for them, says he'll take care of him, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, Robinson Jr. subsequently drops out of college and he starts working odd jobs here or there around Nashville. Then a year later, he finds another lady who's a lot more faithful. Her name is Frances Alter- Althauser and they get married and they very quickly have a son of their own. Now, at this point, Robinson's not really able to support his young family, just doing a couple odd jobs here and there. And the economy's getting worse. The Great Depression is really starting to pick up with, you know, the collapse on wall street in 1929 which is when they basically get married so robinson starts to look for alternative income streams okay and he begins committing petty thefts as one is wont to do yeah so he cooks up this robbery scheme that was scheme that was pretty elaborate he would pose as a revenue agent go into wealthier homes and present a fake search warrant then he'd search the home for valuables and steal them everything was going well with the scheme until in late 1929, he was arrested for stealing jewelry from a wealthy Nashville woman.
0: Okay, well, you should have learned your lesson that time.
1: Yep, yep. I, I think he managed to pull it off at least twice, if not three times. So no. he was relatively successful. Yeah. He's arrested for the for robbery, but instead of going right to jail or to trial, he's held for observation for several months, basically to determine if he's even sane enough for trial, given his past history. Right. Now, I wasn't sure 100% if it was because he was previously institutionalized in the last, like, basically two or three years, or because he was a, quote, transvestite who liked to travel about in women's clothing, end quote. And, you know, it was the 1930s. So that was, yeah. I found a couple sources mentioning that, like, Robinson would cross-dress. But it was really hard to tell if that was like a rumor they told about this guy yeah, or if it was legit and just like kind of glossed over because it was the 30s and a lot of publications didn't want to get into that weird salacious yeah. gender nonconforming area. That's true. Either way, Robinson ends up on the psychiatric hold and it kind of works out in his favor. The charges get dropped while he's still under observation and he's released in 1930. Okay. Never really pays for the crime of robbing these ladies in Nashville. Well, that sucks. Mm-hmm. After his release, he takes his wife and son, and he gets the hell out of Nashville. First, they go to St. Louis for a while, and then they relocate to Indianapolis. And in Indianapolis, Robinson concocts his kidnap plan and lays the groundwork for it by renting an apartment under an assumed name. After he abducted Alice from her home, he drove straight from Louisville to Indianapolis. Now, Robinson basically got to the rented apartment locked Alice in a closet and left the apartment so he could go run some errands. And he did this any time he left the apartment, he would tie her hands up and lock her in the apartment, lock her in the closet. Well, that's
0: nice of him, I guess.
1: Yeah. At night, he would tie Alice to the bed with a rope tying both of her wrists together above her head, and then he would tie a line from her wrist to his wrist, assuming that oh. if she woke up and tried to escape, it would tug his wrist and wake him up. Yeah. So here's like poor Alice on her bed, hands above her head, trying to sleep while he's like snoring next to her.
0: yeah, how the hell do you even sleep?
1: yeah, over the next seven days, Robinson holds Alice captive during this time. he makes her write a letter to her husband that included her wedding ring as proof of life back home in Louisville. her husband it's not
0: really proof of life I, I mean
1: well, it was like a letter she wrote to him, oh, and it okay. was like, here's my wedding ring. Uh, Like, you need to pay the ransom. This might be the last time I get to talk to you or communicate with you. And it's like, well, that's chilling, terrifying. And back home in Louisville, Barry starts to gather the funds to pay the ransom. Now, because the FBI is involved, they're like, yep, let's pay the ransom. But we're going to have an FBI agent disguised as a courier deliver the ransom to Nashville. So once the agent gets to Nashville, he drops it off at the appointed location And uh, Thomas Robinson Sr. sends his daughter-in-law, Francis, so his son's wife, to go pick up this ransom. Francis goes, and she grabs the cash, and she immediately boards a train for Indianapolis. And the whole time, the FBI is following her. Now, the younger Robinson told Francis to meet him at the rented apartment with the cash and to be super careful about being followed, because chances are, you probably have an FBI tail. Yeah. And she did and they were able to track her on the train ride but when she gets to the train station in Indianapolis something happens and they lose her. And so she manages to slip out of the train station oh, and they lose her trail. Yeah. And she still has the $50,000. Oh. She arrives at the apartment. Robinson's like oh thank God honey you're here. I'm just going to take this money and run and then I'll meet back up with you. I'll contact you. Don't worry. And he leaves both his wife and Alice behind the apartment. Huh. Frances Robinson unties Alice and then realizes her husband's not coming back. So she helps Alice contact some relatives uh, of the Speed family in Indianapolis who arrange to drive both women back to Louisville. Okay. Meanwhile, the FBI, who's basically concerned because they lost track of the kidnapper, rally and they intercept uh, Alice and Frances Robinson on the road back to Louisville, arrest Frances, and then they escort Alice home. So, Kind of a happy ending so far. Yeah. Alice may be a bit traumatized, but she's still alive. Yeah. Now, both Francis and her father-in-law, Thomas Robinson Sr., are charged a- and tried as accomplices. However, they are acquitted because at trial it came out that they really didn't quite understand what Robinson Jr. was plotting. Yeah. It was kind of like, hey, I'm going to ask you to pick something up for me. Um, and then that's kind of what he did. <laughs> Plus, being married to Francis, you can't really testify against your spouse. True. So she may have had more knowledge of what was happening, but she wasn't in a position to intervene. Yeah.
0: I mean, you could waive that right if you want to, but still, they can't force you to testify against your
1: spouse. Exactly. So while all this is happening, the FBI are still hunting for Thomas Robinson Jr., and it takes almost two years to find him. During this time, Robinson's basically living off the ransom money. He's staying at like the best hotels, eating at the best restaurants, hitting up whatever fancy nightclubs he can find as he slowly makes his way out to California. Then on May 11th, 1936, the FBI capture Robinson at a hotel in Glendale, California. They received a tip uh, from a local who recognized him from his wanted posters. So that public enemy stuff really did work out. Yeah. When they found him, he only had about $4,000 left of the ransom. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, like, went crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Funnily enough, I found two versions of his capture. Uh, One said that a woman he had been dating or that he, who he was like traveling with to get to Glendale, had turned him in after realizing who he was from the wanted poster. And another one said. That a soda jerk in a Glendale pharmacy contacted police after recognizing a customer who came in as Robinson, despite the fact that Robinson was dressed as a woman at the time. Okay. So, who knows? I like them both. Yeah. Now, according to the New York Times, though there were many reports of Robinson disguising himself as a woman while he was on the run, when he was captured, he was wearing men's clothing, and had grown a mustache. So maybe that whole soda jerk seeing you dress as a lady, yeah, like dude looks like a lady scenario, probably didn't happen. Yeah. But uh, it kind of tickles me if it did. Absolutely. Either way, Robinson was taken back to Louisville for trial. He pled guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison for the kidnapping of Alice Speed Stoll. According to the Stoll family, after Alice put the messiness of the trial behind her, she never really talked about her kidnapping again. Uh, Alice lived into her late 80s and passed away in 1996. Now, normally, this is where our story would end, right? Yeah. Oh, no. Things get a little bit weirder. After sentencing, Thomas Robinson Jr. gets sent to Alcatraz to serve out his sentence.
0: Okay. Not a place you want to be?
1: Absolutely not. So, he spends his time in the law library in Alcatraz, picking up his old law student studies, and proceeds to appeal his case in 1943. He basically submits a writ of habeas corpus to the court saying that he was insane at the time of the kidnapping and he's therefore not responsible for the crimes and he should get a new trial now that he is sane and can explain himself a bit better. Okay. Now, his appeal goes all the way to to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, I was like, what? Okay. Well,
0: He learned a lot about arguing with people in that time.
1: Yes, he did. Uh, And the Supreme Court agrees. Like, yep, you get a brand new trial, sir. We'll see. Justice. Wow. So, a new trial begins for Robinson in September of 1943.
0: And he's still representing himself at this point?
1: That was a little unclear. It seemed like he was representing himself, but there were a mention of trial lawyers and his defense team. So, he probably had, Had like, a... people. Yeah, Yeah. probably have to have, like, a bar-certified lawyer standing on your table or whatever. At least
0: someone to advise him more so, even if he is running the show.
1: Exactly. So, now we're at this new trial. It's 1943. Robinson's like, here's what happened. Me and Alice, we go way back. We actually knew each other from when we met at a stole gas station where I was working in 1931. And we had a really long extramarital affair. He proceeds to testify in court about this affair that he supposedly had with Alice. Bullshit. He's, he, <laughs> uh-huh. he even said that we would meet at this place called the Beach Grove Tourist Camp just outside Louisville for romantic rendezvous. And we did this from 1931 off and on again for several years afterwards. Now he said Alice was a willing participant in the kidnapping. She knew about it. She went with him. So it wasn't really a kidnapping. That's
0: why there was blood all over the Mm -hmm. freaking bedroom.
1: Well, he was like, oh, that was staged to make it look like it was a true kidnapping.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he said, you know, the plan was for the two of them to split the ransom money because they needed to extort money from her husband so they could start a new life together. Yeah. Alice, of course, shows back up at court and vigorously denies this entire crazy ass story. Because, I mean, what in Louisville debutante is really going to leave her husband, yeah. who by all accounts, they had a pretty good marriage, for a crazy service station worker, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, it didn't much matter because his story fell apart when prosecutors investigated a little bit more closely. So that place, the Beach Grove tourist camp where he claimed to stay with Alice. Well, by the time they were at trial, it had closed. And that probably was part of Robinson's strategy because there was no one there to say no, yes or no. Yeah. But it turns out it wasn't even open during the time that That he he said said. that they went there. Oh. So it didn't open until way later. Great. So that. Do your research, buddy. Yep. Yep. So that basically it's thrown out. And here's the kicker. So the jury's like, well, you're guilty of aggravated kidnapping because you attacked Alice with a lead pipe. And you know what that means? That means you get sentenced to death.
0: Oh, shit. So we had a batter sentence before retrial.
1: Yep. Super ironic. If he would have just served out his original sentence for kidnapping, he would have been eligible for parole and possibly out of prison by the time the second 1943 trial rolled around.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. He basically screwed himself.
0: Wow. Okay, (laughs) that's
1: that's crazy. Kind of
0: wonderful, though.
1: (laughs) So, of course, Robinson appeals his death sentence. And guess what? It made it back to the Supreme Court. This time, they were not that flexible, and they ruled against him. They're
0: just like, look, dude, we've done this before, okay? Just, just you made your bed, now yep, lie in yep, it.
1: Exactly. Uh, they upheld the sentence, and his execution date was scheduled for June 8, 1945. Now, Robinson made one desperate last plea to President Harry Truman for clemency. And on June 6, 1945, about 33 hours before Robinson was supposed to die in the electric chair, Truman committed his sentence to life in prison. Robinson ended up escaping twice more before oh he was God. finally released from prison in 1970. It
0: never ends.
1: <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. So he goes back to Alcatraz for like nine years, and they're like, All right, you've been fine. We're going to move you to a minimum security prison, I think in Tallahassee. Yeah. And it was one of those prisons where they do work details, like farm work and stuff yeah. like that. And one day he just basically walks off the work detail. Great. And he did this twice. And the same thing happened both times. He would go on the run for a week or so, and then he would get captured. Now, after those shenanigans, he was finally, finally released in 1970. He continued to live and work in Nashville until his death at 87 years old in 1994. So, yeah, after this, like, crazy kidnapping from the 1930s, both the kidnapper and the kidnappy, like, basically live nice long lives yeah which is not something that happens very often
0: on our show <laughs> no not at all
1: <laughs> yeah so so what do you think
0: that was definitely a ride
1: right right i would i would watch that movie i would too yeah
0: hear that hollywood knock That's knock yeah <laughs> we'll I start writing the screenplay
1: buy our screenplay <laughs> uh, so my sources for today were wikipedia tripadvisor the new york times uh, the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI, IndyStar.com, Louisville Magazine, and Stories, A History of Appalachia podcast, their episode about the kidnapping of Alice Stoll.
0: Nice. Yeah. Thank you for that story. That was fun.
1: You're welcome. I thought it was like a little bit different. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, horse people. Horse people. Isn't like they're like, you know how they had those state quarters like yep, each state yep. had a quarter isn't there's a horse
1: yep there's a horse okay for sure, for sure. i just think it's funny because it's like i always think of louisville as like a pretty fancy place yeah and it's like fancy high society and you don't i don't know i think when i think high society i always think of like other east coast cities or west coast cities yeah but it's like no no louisville there's lots of money there yeah oh yeah so
0: all right guys i guess that is going to be our break now so we will be back after that
1: see you soon
0: And we're back.
1: Welcome back.
0: I think that my cat wants to play D&D and try to roll a 20 because he is laying on stuff for D&D right now.
1: Good thing your dice aren't out.
0: I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we are back and I have a story to tell you that I thought was pretty damn interesting. I'm excited. It's a little different. So this week's story takes place in Brownsville, Kentucky and beyond. seriously what i'm going to talk about takes up a lot of space so we'll get into that in a minute but brownsville is the county seat of edmondson county as well as being a home rule class city you might be wondering what that means because i had no idea either
1: yeah i don't know
0: i uh, it took some digging for me to find out what it actually meant in simple terms rather than legalese But basically, it means the city is given the power to pretty much govern itself, making its own laws, rather than being overseen by, you know...
1: State laws and stuff? State laws,
0: exactly. But it depends from what I could find. Mm. Like, it varies in degrees of...
1: Like, power, like, they can do certain laws, but other laws they have to follow. Exactly, yeah. Gotcha.
0: The town was established in 1826... And has a population of around 836 people as of the 2010 census and is 2.62 square miles, so it's pretty small.
1: Yeah, pretty small town.
0: This made it a little difficult to find things to do in Brownsville, but I was able to find an interesting spot called Paquin Farms and French Fort Vineyards.
1: I like a good vineyard.
0: And a fort. Uh, it's, part, uh, it's part vineyard and part park, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, You can even go camping there, so they have a lot to do. Um, The great thing about Brownsville is it's centrally located, and if you want to live or visit there, you're not far from bigger cities. That's cool. Bowling Green is about half an hour away, and Louisville is only an hour and a half away.
1: Okay, so you can get that country, rural lifestyle, but still be close enough for cities. To have some fun, Yeah, 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 cool.
0: Of course, the real attraction here, and the star of my story, is Mammoth Cave. Ooh. Have you ever been to a cave, Nicole?
1: Um, I feel like I have, but it was with a school tour. Yeah.
0: That's when I was too. Yeah. Uh, one time with school, one time with scouts, I think. Um, so I've only ever been to two Crystal Cave in Kutztown. And it's really cool because according to their website, it's said to even, it, when it was discovered, it was said to rival the beauty of Mammoth Cave.
1: Oh, nice little tie in. So, so you're I like, found that interesting. you can picture it. Yeah.
0: Because <laughs> it's, it's a really nice cave. The other one I've been to is Lost River Caverns, which, although still fun, it's nowhere near as pretty as Crystal Cave.
1: Yeah, that's the one I think they took us to. Yeah, Crystal Cave's the
0: nicer one. However, both the caves I've been to have nothing on Mammoth Cave in length. Its name is perfect for its size, as it runs for 415 miles, or 667.8 kilometers, for our international listeners.
1: Wow, that's ginormous.
0: And that makes it the largest cave system in the world.
1: Who knew? I did not know that was in Kentucky.
0: Yeah, uh, the cave actually stretched through Edmonton, Hart, and Barron counties, so it stretches pretty far. Uh, the reason that I used Brownsville as my intro piece for the story is that it's the closest city listed and is home to some of Mammoth Cave, uh, home to some of the Mammoth Cave National Park as well. Gotcha. The cave itself is so massive, it dwarfs its competition as it is nearly double the size of the second largest cave in the world. Um not sure if I'm right, but Sac Actun in Mexico.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that.
0: And it's an underwater cave, which sounds pretty awesome as well, although I feel like I'm drowning just thinking about being <laughs> there. So I don't know.
1: Like you have to deal with claustrophobia when you go into a cave and it, then it's like and then there's water. And then there's water. Good oh. luck surviving.
0: Hope that oxygen tank doesn't run out.
1: (laughs) Take shallow breaths.
0: Exactly. So you can take tours of Mammoth Cave, which are given by the National Park Service. There are a bunch of different tours that you can take. They range from one to six hours, and you can choose between whether you want a tour with the lights on or have them turned off and just have paraffin lanterns to see by.
1: Wow. When
0: I was on my tour of both caves that I saw, they turned off all the lights on us and I was standing on a scary bridge both times. (laughs) So that was not fun for me, seeing as I was a child both times, and I do not like heights at all.
1: It's like, hey, you don't like heights? Are you afraid of the dark? Well, you will be now.
0: Perfect. This cave has a history that rivals its geographical mass. This thing goes back 5,000 years, and there have been plenty of remains found inside, some of which were Native American, Mm -hmm. which not only means that this cave system is old, but also, it's probably hella haunted since you know there's always some shit with Native American burial grounds. <laughs> so, go toward the light, Caroline.
1: That is a good advice for anybody trapped in a cave, too. <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: It works. The corpses found were mummified, by the way. Oh. Because of the conditions in the ca- so, cave, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, so dry, probably.
0: Yeah. And burial rites that the bodies received not only spoke to the fact that these bodies have been there pre-Columbus, but also that they were intentionally interred there. Hmm. There was also a body found in 1935 that turned out to be a pre-Columbian miner who had been crushed to death by a boulder. His remains were put on display in the 70s and they refer to him as Lost John since they don't have a real name for him. Hmm. They've also had other historical findings in the cave such as tools that were used by the people exploring and residing in or near the cave throughout its history.
1: So lots of artifacts, huh?
0: Oh, yeah. They found cave drawings here as well as hand-woven moccasins, so we do know that this was probably a very special place for the native tribes of the area. According to Wikipedia, the cave hadn't been used since the Archaic period, so not after about 1000 BC or so. (laughs) The cave also produces gypsum flowers. Do you know what those are, Nicole?
1: No. I know what gypsum is, but not flowers.
0: Uh, They're actually um, selenite. Oh. Um, I actually have some upstairs. I was going to bring it down, but I forgot about it. (laughs) Uh, It's a type of quartz crystal. When referred to as gypsum flowers, however, it forms in in this weird way where it actually looks like little flowers from farther away.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah,
0: they're really neat. If you're into crystals, you may want to know that selenite is said to aid in relaxation and inner peace. It's used for meditation and also is said to clear confusion. Hmm. What's the main thing you think of when you think of caves, Nicole? Bats. Bats. Okay, besides bats.
1: Oh, darkness. I okay. Trapped treasure.
0: Okay, I'm just going to read my line then, Nicole, <laughs> since you're not helping. <laughs> uh, stalagmites and stalactites oh uh, that's where my mind always goes
1: oh yeah that's a good good one that's way better than bats
0: <laughs> no but i do think of bats i'm like i know she's gonna say bats that's <laughs> fine so apparently due to sandstone formations which create a protective barrier on the upper and lower parts of this cave uh those areas have none they don't oh, have any
1: weird so it's just like blank like almost like it had been carved out without stalactites and stalagmites. Yeah.
0: Like actually I didn't know this, but apparently they form from water dripping down, which that sandstone I mentioned prevents. Like a, yeah. Uh no water equals no stalactites or stalagmites, apparently.
1: Cool. Learning new stuff.
0: And also just in case people have forgotten which is which, the ones that are hanging from the ceiling are stalactites and the ones on the ground are stalagmites. Besides sandstone and selenite, the cave is also has like very common thing found in caves. Limestone. Ah. Lots and lots of limestone. So the combination of layers of limestone and sandstone are what keeps this cave going strong and not caving in. Okay. Also, I know you guys came here for the hauntings, but there's something else creepy lurking in this cave besides hauntings. It's home to an endangered species of albino shrimp known as Kentucky Cave Shrimp. <gasps> What? I don't know why that sounds so much like a KFC menu item to me, nor do I know why it's the Popeye's lady voice in my head trying to sell it to me, <laughs> but that's what's happening right now.
1: Ooh, honey, get yourself some Kentucky cave shrimp.
0: Exactly, yes. Spicy. Like, oh, with my secret recipe. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of shrimp alive, I'm yeah, sure. They're creepy. They're disgusting looking. Yeah. Yes. So, that's why I said something else creepy because yeah, that's th- creepy as hell.
1: Yes, I feel like encountering albino shrimps in a cave would be terrifying. Oh, yes. I know they're tiny, but still, you're like, what are these strange bugs?
0: Yeah, they're pretty much bugs of the sea. So, Although this cave, or at least parts of it since it's massive, are located in the Mammoth County National Park, it had a weird history of ownership that I was able to sort of piece together. Okay. I say sort of because I don't really know about it in great detail, but there's Part of it that's known as the Pollard Survey and what is owned at one point by a Philadelphia man by the name of William Pollard. Okay. This section was 31,000 acres, but I guess Willie owed some money and it was sold as an indenture in 1791 and purchased by a man from Yorkshire in 1796, who then also lost it to a county tax claim in the War of 1812. <laughs> Yeah, so no one holds on to it for very long.
1: It's cursed. Clearly.
0: Yeah. So this tale hasn't been completely confirmed, but supposedly the first Europeans to come across the cave were one of two brothers, John or Francis Houchin. Last name is H-O-U-C-H-I-N. I I don't know, but I'm going to say Houchin. Go for it. So sorry if I'm saying that last name wrong, but I've literally never heard it before. The tale says that they were chasing a bear into the cave, while other tales have John's son, maybe, whose name was John Decatur Huchin, or as he's called, and I'm not kidding, Johnny Dick, (laughs) discovering this cave. But that one is highly disputed, as he was only about the age of 10 or so at this time, Mm. so it's probably not the Johnny Dick cave. Thank God. (laughs) People who have studied these claims seem to think that it was probably Francis, however, who truly came across this cave, since his property is a lot closer to this entrance than any of the others. Okay. It's also been said that their other brother, Charles, discovered the cave because he was said to be a skilled hunter, but he was living in Illinois at the time, so, you know, that's probably not true either.
1: Yeah, they just know that one of these brothers discovered it. Exactly.
0: Others say none of these stories are true and that the cave was well known before any of this.
1: Well, shit. So Throw that all out.
0: Exactly. The cave was kind of a big deal during the War of 1812 because of the Jefferson embargo, which prohibited foreign trade. And saltpeter was very much needed during the war.
1: Yeah, because you needed to make gunpowder. Exactly.
0: If you don't know what saltpeter is, it's actually potassium nitrate, which is rich in this cave and is used in the production of gunpowder along with charcoal and sulfur. If you need more information on Saltpeter, watch the movie 1776. Blythe Danner sings a really annoying song about it, but she was kind of hot back then, so it's okay. <laughs> so, for a while during the war, this place was mined and mined and then mined some more for its vast resources, and it wasn't until after the war that it became a tourist attraction. Hmm. When this happened, it kind of started another war the most ridiculous war that I've ever heard of, the Kentucky Cave Wars.
1: <laughs> I'd watch that show on Annie. Yeah,
0: it's like Whale Wars. <laughs> um, basically, out where all these caves are in Kentucky, the farming game sucks. So that's out of the question. So to make money, people who owned properties with caves decided to trick people into going to their caves instead of the actually impressive Mammoth Cave.
1: Oh, so it's a bunch of hoax Mammoth Caves.
0: Yes. <laughs> Uh, they would place signs for the tourists along the roads, either saying that they were Mammoth Cave or that Mammoth Cave was closed, caved in, or shut down in some other way. Hmm. They would also do something called capping, where they would jump on a car's running board, which is that little step up point in higher cars mm-hmm. to get into, and then lead people to the tourist trap. So
1: they'd be like, Hey jump us onto your car. You're looking for a good afternoon? Well, here, just take, make, take a left up here and come exactly. on down to the cave.
0: That is exactly what they would do.
1: That sounds kind of charming, but also annoying as hell. Like,
0: Get off my damn car, hippie. Like, I
1: don't know you. <laughs> I'm just trying to go to the store.
0: I also came across an interesting story about a doctor slash piece of shit slave owner who bought the place in 1839. As unfortunate as this is, the slaves that he owned actually came with the land. Mm. One such person was named Stephen Bishop, and he ran the tours at this time because they used to have slaves run the tours. Mm. By all accounts, despite being a slave, he was rather learned, and he knew tons of information about these caves. He was very smart and very well-spoken, and he made a lot of discoveries in this cave, ranging from new passages to albino fish swimming in the cave's Echo Lake. Cool. I don't know what became of him when the doctor came up with the wonderful idea of turning this cave into a hospital instead, but that definitely happened.
1: That seems super strange. Hospital.
0: Yeah, I know. I thought I read it wrong, too, when I was doing my notes. Yeah. So I don't know what possessed him to think of such a thing, but he figured that the cave's cool temperatures would be good for curing tuberculosis for some reason, or as it was known back then, consumption.
1: Okay. I mean, you got to throw a lot of spaghetti at that wall before something sticks. Exactly.
0: So, the only thing that I do know about what happened to Stephen was that he was finally set free in 1855 and he died a year later, which was not uncommon Hmm. because after the abolition of slavery or after just setting slaves free, that's all they knew. That was their entire life. So, what do you do? How do you make money? How do you live? Mm
1: -hmm. I also imagine, too. Especially, you said it was 1855. Mm -hmm. They may have freed him because he was perhaps ill. So it was just easier to be like, okay. That's also a possibility. You're you're free now. I don't have to worry about your medical care. You and, you know, getting anybody else sick. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, the amount of freed slaves that actually died very shortly after being freed is astounding. Just because, you know, they didn't learn to read or write. Because how do you keep people compliant? Make sure they're not educated. Yep. So... It was a shitty time all around. Uh, Anyway, back to this doctor. The doctor ended up building these huts throughout the cave, and there were 11 in total, and he brought in 15 patients. Mm. This little experiment worked as well as you might imagine, and two of the patients died pretty much straight off within the first year, and the others just got worse. The final comedic nail in this tuberculosis-infected coffin was the way that the doctor died. Any guesses? Cave in. Nope. Tuberculosis. He he got tuberculosis.
1: Good for him. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So the huts are still in place today, and the area of the cave is now known as Corpse Rock. Oh, God. (laughs) Which sounds more like a subgenre of death metal, but okay. (laughs) Accurate. There's a lot more history to this place than what I have already stated. Wikipedia alone could fill a whole book on this place. But for the sake of time, I want to wrap this part up so we can get to the good stuff. One last thing I will say before delving into the ghosts is that Mammoth Cave is actually more of a series of interconnected caves uh which form one large one, just in case anyone was curious.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: That's why there's all these different parts to the caves, all these different tunnel systems. Yeah. Cuz it's like a group of smaller caves making up one large one. You know, like the Power Rangers making up that Megazord.
1: (laughs) Or Voltron being made from all of those lions.
0: which is where Power Rangers came from, I'm damn sure of. Mm -hmm. So, now let's get to the spooky. Nice. If you decide to take one of the tours of this cave, you may see a few extra attendees that you didn't come in with. Plenty of people have witnessed people following the tour group that are dressed in old-timey clothing and miner's clothing.
1: Creepy.
0: Sometimes people actually stop the rangers giving the tours to ask about these people who end up disappearing into the shadows. Oh, so spooky. One time, on one of the Lantern tours, someone was actually pushed by an unseen force, which is just, you know, a big nope for me. All the lights are out and you get pushed? Yeah,
1: no. Nope.
0: The next one I warned you about because cave tour guides are sadists. Okay. One man said when he went on a lantern tour, the ranger had them turn off their lanterns to see how dark the cave gets. I told you this would happen, and it was probably near a freaking bridge because they love doing that shit.
1: <laughs> they need a little joy in their day. They're <laughs> right? walking around caves all day.
0: <laughs> so he says once in the dark, he felt a hand wrap around his wrist, And it stayed there for around three seconds. Then uh, the light came back on and his sister asked if he'd heard the quote-unquote commotion. What? Apparently, a woman said someone grabbed her in the dark. He then told his sister, no, but I felt you touch my wrist. She hadn't touched his wrist. Oh, no. Yep. There's a legend that says a woman named Melissa uh, had either a friend or an ex that she had led deep into the cave and then was like, Bye, Felicia. Find your own damn way out. Love ya. That's so cold. And she just left this person. That friend or ex never found their way out of the cave, and the spirit of Melissa apparently haunts the cave to this day, looking for a person she left behind in the cave. Rangers say that they can hear her voice crying out in there as well.
1: Spooky. That's going to be so spooky, too, because you're like a ranger, and you're like, is someone lost, and you hear a voice, and like, you have to go investigate like but it's a fucking ghost yeah Uh -uh.
0: no not a great place to work nope nope this is known because a magazine called knickerbocker magazine um where she apparently gave a deathbed confession before dying of tuberculosis her cries are not the only ghostly sounds that you'll hear in this cave however uh phantom coughing can be heard through the mines which some also attribute to melissa but i have another theory i think it could be like miners
1: or tuberculosis or tuberculosis patients, patients.
0: Right? very true yeah another reason i don't think it's melissa is because that might not even be a true story as there is a short story about it from 1858 by lily Devereux blake called a tragedy in the mammoth cave hmm. so it might be fiction
1: yeah kind of got twisted around with accurate true things and
0: exactly so there might be something similar but not the same that happened yeah. you know
1: you gotta love like 19th century journalism oh
0: exactly So, people can also hear screams coming from seemingly nowhere, which is just freaking creepy. Nope. There's also the ghost of a man named Floyd Collins. He went spelunking one day, and it turned out
1: not so well. He went splattering one day, you mean?
0: Pretty much. Uh, So, as we all know, exploring caves, especially on your own, is dangerous, and Floyd got caught in a narrow passage when a rock fell on his leg.
1: Oh, my God. That sounds so terrible. So, he
0: was pinned there. And a lot of people, including friends and family, tried to get him unpinned and free him from that spot. But sadly, he did not make it. I should add that the Collins family owned the property at this time. And the man who bought the property from the family, I don't know how, but it is documented, had Floyd's body exhumed and displayed at the entrance of the cave.
1: What?
0: Yeah, what is this? The pikes at King's Landing with Ned Stark's head on them? Oh my god. And I shouldn't have made that joke because now my head keeps going. So, back to the issue at hand, because it gets even worse. His body was actually stolen at one point, and although it was later recovered, his injured leg is still missing to this day.
1: It's so ghoulish, like yeah. who steals a body? One for who steals a body? Yeah. Two who steals a body that's been on display in front of a cave for years? Ugh. Three
0: like... who's just like fine, I'll give it back, but I'm keeping the leg as a souvenir.
1: I love that leg. You cannot have it.
0: I went to Mammoth Cave and all I got was his lousy leg. (laughs) So apparently he still haunts the area in which he died, which at this point I would too. I mean, you can, yeah, Yeah. imagine. Yeah. You can still hear him screaming for help, apparently.
1: Well, that's goddamn terrifying.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, I was just hoping he'd haunt the ass of the person who stole his body. (laughs) Where's the
1: leg?
0: (laughs) There's been reports of phantom footsteps Uh, By guides and visitors alike as well. So it sounds like someone's following you and there's no one there. Oh,
1: yeah. I don't like that one bit.
0: And during the blackouts where they turn off all the lights, it seems to be the biggest time for the spirits to come out to play, by the way, because this place just needs to be even creepier. Hmm. Why not? I found another story that shines a light, no pun intended, (laughs) uh, on our country's unfortunate racist past as well. Um, so, at one point, there was a Methodist church down in this cave as well, because I guess caves can be churches, hospitals, or anything else you want them to be if you just believe hard enough. <laughs> anyway, this was back when whites and blacks did not mix, and black families who attended these services at the church had to stand in the back and keep their distance from the white churchgoers. Okay. On a tour right before a blackout, a guide saw a black family in the back of the room at the Methodist church area. And the man in the family who wore a big white Panama hat seemed to be listening very intently, according to my source. Uh, when the lights went back on, the family was gone.
1: Ooh. Yeah. These phantom visitors. is like very unnerving. I know. I wonder how long tour guides last in the mammoth caves, I know, right? Like... Well,
0: I mean, they're state employees because they're park rangers. Mm. Put so. in a transfer request. Yeah, oh. I know. That's like pretty much your way out if you still want to work for the state and make... A lot of good money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this last story is probably the spirit of a slave tour guide, because I would mentioned before that they had yeah, made they, the,
1: they used slave as a to tour guide back yes. in the nineteenth century.
0: So at the area known as Sacrifice Rock, because they love their cheery names, <laughs> uh, a woman saw a shadowy figure dressed in similar clothing to what the tour guides uh, would have worn at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, she pointed to him and asked, who was that? He was also holding a lantern, apparently, as well. He could be seen from three different angles, according to my source, before disappearing. Hmm. The guides kind of brushed this off and told them it was probably a shadow. What? Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess you get to do what you got to do to keep people calm when you're leading them through a cave.
0: But, But yeah, I mean, that's, you can see him from all sides. It's not a freaking shadow. No. Uh, I disagree on that big time. So Nicole. What do you think of this amazing cave with quite the history? Would you be splunking and ghosting here?
1: I would not be splunking or ghosting there, but it is a really cool place from the sound of it. And I would take a tour, but it's not the lantern tour. Yeah,
0: I I wouldn't do the lantern tour either. That
1: seems a little too intense. A little too many. Nope, nope. Don't need those lanterns casting. Like I said, childhood trauma. I don't think so. Yeah, no, no. But yeah, that's really interesting, though, because you think about. Places that can be haunted, and like you think about man made structures mostly, but like a cave that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, like people have been using caves as natural shelter for you know millenniums. So, oh, yeah, yeah.
0: So, I mean, I would definitely check it out because it seems pretty cool. Yeah, but um, yeah, I would definitely stay on the ones that have the lights on.
1: Yeah, no need for that authentic lantern tour. (laughs) No,
0: and they're still going to turn the lights off on you anyway, which sucks, but you know. So my sources for this week, Wikipedia, CharmsofLight.com, CrystalCavePA.com, a book by Margaret M. Brindwell called Mammoth Cave National Park, Kentucky, a brief history. It wasn't very brief, as you could tell from my story. Um, PrairieGhost.com, GhostAndGhouls.com, KentuckyBB.com, NPS.gov, and NationalParksTraveler.org.
1: I enjoyed that story, Eden. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So that's our show for today. We hope you all enjoyed.
1: Yeah, if you guys also like the stories today, you have suggestions for new stories, you can always reach out to us at our email address, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com.
0: You can also find us on social media. Um, We're on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror.
1: You can also stop by our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Also, if you have a moment, please take some time to rate and review us on your favorite pod catcher program of choice. It really helps get the show out there so other people can find our delightful haunted tales.
0: Absolutely. And come see our live show. (laughs) Um, We'd also like to thank Yoxbox Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music.
1: Until next week, roadsters. Creep, Creep on, creeping on.